I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silvercore, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silvercore Club, which includes $10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. If you really want to get deep into the backcountry to explore areas that see little to no hunting or fishing pressure, a jet boat can unlock that pristine wilderness. This podcast was recorded on the side of a river inside a Thunderjet aluminum boat with expert operator Robert Bryce. Robert provides important tips and tricks and insight that can help you get to your dream location and back safely. So I'm sitting down on the side of the beautiful Skeena River, just outside a historic 1900s ghost town with Robert Bryce on his Thunderjet jet boat. Robert, welcome to Silvercore Podcast. Oh, thanks a lot, Travis. You've got an interesting history. You teach and help out at the University of BC, don't you? University of Northern BC, I should say. Yeah, University of Northern BC with our campus based out of Prince George. And uh, yeah, we encompass the whole northern half of the province. And we're fortunate enough to have a campus in Terrace, which I uh, work out of. You also have your own tourism business. Yeah, so I have a, a, a little touring jet boat business called Northern BC Jet Boat Tours, which I actually contract myself in a sense to the university for a series of adventure tours and then also do a bunch of other uh, jet boat touring on, uh, on my own. So when you take people out on these jet boat tours, what exactly are you doing? Uh, a lot of them are focused on kind of little niche-based, unique tours focused on Northwest BC. So, you know, one of the highlights that, that I think we have is a, a series of ghost town tours. So we're fortunate enough to have five or six uh, kind of unique and almost exclusive ghost towns in this area. So that would be one of them. Grizzly bear viewing. So, you know, we have lots of uh, coastal rivers here and estuaries and that with uh, grizzly bears in them and some really healthy populations. So we can go out and, and watch, you know, grizzly bears from the safety of a boat and makes everyone feel comfortable. Um, and yeah, it's other stuff of this area. We have a uh, canneries tour. So we have a long history of uh, salmon canneries on the base of the or mouth of the Skeena River. So we'll go and look at those and talk all about the history and look at the remnants that still remain, um, you know, from that late 1800, early 1900 days. We also have the uh, the Skeena River, which we're sitting on right now, and we do a, a tour, a five-day tour down the Skeena River and looking at all of the uh, history and scenery and wildlife, um, you know, staying at accommodations on the edge each night. So that's definitely one of the highlights, especially on a nice day like today, um, you know, where it's nice and sunny out. And yeah, it's a... Uh, you know, you know, a series of other rivers with waterfalls and, you know, ecology, culture, you know, whale watching even, you know, kind of just kind of looking at what we have in Northwest BC, what other people might want to see and yeah, take them out to, to see these things and experience it. Can I get a shameless plug in? Like if people wanted to experience this, where, where would they go? Where would they Yeah, they, I mean, I have a website. It's uh, www.northernbcjetboattours.ca or they can just Google that and my Facebook site will come up as well and info at northernbcjetboattours.ca and send me a note. And yeah, we can customize any tour for um, you know, whoever and get multiple boats out there and yeah, just depending on what people's interests are, if they're interested in scenery, wildlife, culture, history or a combination, we can uh, definitely set something up for them. 
And you teach jet boating out of the university, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily teach the course. We have an instructor that teaches it, but I uh, definitely help out and assist with the course. So yeah, we uh, were fortunate enough to have the flexibility to kind of run almost anything and everything out of our continuing studies department that I work for. And jet boat safety is one of them. And yeah, we do a lot of courses for ministries like, you know, the, the Department of Fisheries, lots of the First Nation communities and their fishery programs, fishery consultants, biologists. And, you know, it's just a program or a course that's really not out there and a lot of people are tasked with sending their staff out to run a jet boat and you know unless they're doing that training internally they have to have some sort of training at least to cover them off and you know so we have a one day class and one day on the river uh, jet boat course where people are actually driving the boats and myself and our main instructor will be out there with the uh, the students and uh, giving them you know all the stuff that we know we can share with them to uh, run a boat safely and you know this is this course is for people who want to run a boat safely not for cowboys or guys who want to jump gravel bars <laughs> and you know if that's your thing then this course probably isn't for you but if you uh, want to be you know we treat it like uh, being a captain of a boat or a ship and you're responsible for those people whether they're staff members or family or whoever getting them back safely at the end of the day and that for us is the most important thing is that they're putting their trust in you and here's all the tips we know of and you know being cautious so that's you know the one thing we're not you know running rivers we've never run before and if we are we're scouting them and pre-scouting and stuff like that so it's uh a lot of safety stuff and like I said that's the kind of the, the foremost uh, thing we focus on in the course. So I guess jumping up gravel bars would be level two would it? Yeah that's... level two and yeah we call them the cowboys and you know these guys who have the sporty boats and yeah it looks fun to me but you know I value my boat a little bit more maybe <laughs> and some of these other guys are you know they got money to burn and you know impellers to burn you know they're sucking up gravel continually and you know, a boat like this might be $3,000 to redo the impellers. And some of those guys will do that, you know, two or three times a year. Whoa. You know, they're pumping more gravel out of their boat than they are water. And so uh, teach their own if that's their thing. But, you know, our course and, you know, what we do is is more, you know, tours and focused on, uh, you know, running some, some nice rivers, but doing it safely. And, yeah. So I've always wanted a jet boat. I've got a I've got an aluminum boat that I take out into the Georgia Strait and do some fishing in, but I've wanted a jet boat so I can get into the shallower areas and hunting in the lower mainland and take it up some of our rivers. For somebody who's never owned or operated a jet boat before, what are some considerations that I should be thinking about maybe in purchasing and once I have one? Well, I mean, I always tell people, what do you think you're going to be doing with this boat? Because one boat will not serve all your needs. You know, we're on a big boat here that can run, you know, decent sized rivers and go out on the ocean. And, but it will not run, you know, skinny rivers where lots of boulders and shallow areas. So you have to decide where you're going to be running your boat and pick a boat for that application. And, uh, you know, also within your budget as well. I mean, money's always... Uh, you know, an issue as well. So I always tell people, you know, where are you going to be running your boat primarily? How many people are going to be going in your boat? That'll decide how much power you need for that boat. Is it just you and your wife or are you a hunter that's going to get that thousand pound moose and want to carry it out <laughs> of some remote river? Well, you need more horsepower for that and a bigger pump. And so, uh, you know, are you doing fisheries work out of the back of it? Do you want a motor sitting in the back or do you want an outboard motor if you're doing fisheries work and having a big platform at the back of your boat? Uh, so it, it, you know, it just really depends on, you know, what you're going to be using that boat for. And then once people have decided that, you know, we help people kind of narrow it down to the type and size and length and, you know, what kind of V on the bottom. Is it flat bottom? Does it, you know, have a good V for, you know, running in bigger water and oceans and lakes and that? If you're just running your boat out in the lake, then... Yeah, you don't need a flat bottom boat that's, you know, going to pound your kidneys all day long. Mm. So there's lots of options out there between types and sizes of motors and lengths. And yeah, it's 
it's almost endless. And then you have, you know, inflatable boats, you know. So that's one thing that's kind of getting more popular now is uh, inflatable jet boats. So, you know, something that's a bit more portable and uh, you can move them around, deflate them, put them inside another boat. So, yeah, lots of... Uh, oh, know, I like that idea. Are, yeah. So just like an outboard jet? Yeah, an inflatable. outboard jet. Uh, you know, I have a, another small jet boat that uh, the it's a two-stroke so, uh, two motor that you can actually, one or two guys can actually carry the, the motor. So I can put it in a bigger jet boat like this. Mm. I can put the inflatable in a bigger jet boat like this. So I basically have two boats in one and then use the big boat to access areas that you wouldn't normally get to and uh, push the small one off and put the, uh, the small two-stroke jet motor on and access small creeks that uh, out in the ocean that... You know, you wouldn't normally run a small jet boat like that out there, but having the big one to, uh, you know, for the transportation. So, yeah, lots of options. You know, I'm not a, a hunter, but, uh, you know, I, I know guys love to hunt. And, you know, putting an ATV on the back of your boat is something that uh, a lot of hunters would probably like. And I've done that with this boat. A little platform built on here, some ramps, and load up that ATV. And you can go push that off on, uh, you know, some bar or, uh, you know, where they've logged out in some ocean valley or creek and, run that ATV up there and be probably one of the only people hunting up there with your ATV. Now that's cool. So that's- yeah, it just depends on, you know, what you want to use that boat for. And it's, it's almost endless to be honest. And, you know, just know the limitations of the boat you're getting that, uh, now you recently did a trip in this boat, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about it? You started talking about it, but I asked you to save it. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I love to fish and, you know, with, with COVID this year, one of the things that happened was a couple lodges on the Lower Dean River, which is probably the premier steelhead river in the province, were shut down and that uh, gave us an opportunity to go down there and fish, you know, a river that basically nobody is going to be on. None of the clients, no guides, nothing on there. So, uh, you know, something you wouldn't think about is taking a jet boat nine hours to a river to go fish, but we decided to do it mostly inland ocean water and ended up being pretty calm, but nine hours of jet boating to get to a river that really only has three kilometers of jet boatable water. And then there's a big (laughs) canyon, but primarily, you know, we had that river to ourselves fishing it for five days and then jet boated back, uh, you know, to Kitimat. So from Kitimat to the Dean River, uh, six hours to Shearwater, gassed up at Shearwater. And that's about the extent of the limit of this boat for gas. So six hours, seven hours of running time. Um, we did bring some extra, you know, gas cans with us just for safety purposes. And uh, then, yeah, gassed up and three hours into the Dean, three hours back. That was another full tank. And then six hours back. Uh, so, yeah, it ended up being about 18, 19 hours in total of uh, of boating that we did uh, there and back. But, yeah, beautiful trip, lots of fish. And one of those trips of a lifetime that, uh, that yeah, you won't forget. No kidding. Was that the first time you've taken it out on the ocean like that? That, that far. far. I mean, I've done two and three hour one way ocean trips. So, you know, never, uh, you know, really more than a full tank uh, on the boat. So that was definitely the furthest I've done it. But, you know, I've been out in areas similar in similar uh, areas of that, um, you know, coming in from Bella Coola or out from Kitimat. So there was only maybe a couple hours I'd never been on in that stretch. So I was fairly familiar with the water and I knew that fairly protected, you know, there's no open water that you're going to hit. And, you know, all the safety precautions, you know, we got uh, radio, satellite phone, everything. If something did happen, we were, uh, you know, we were set up for, you know, pretty much uh, anything that could happen. Now, I saw something on, I think, I think it was Tourism BC. They yeah. did a video and you were in it. Yeah. And that was uh, talking about the ghost towns. 
Yeah, that's it's something that's kind of unique to this area. And one of my passions definitely is we're fortunate here to have five or six different kind of ghost towns, all resource towns. So, you know, BC is really a resource town. We extract resources. So all these ghost towns once provided a resource. So the, there are a lot of them are mining towns. Uh, Kitsalt uh, was a molybdenum mine shut down in 1982 as a full community there with you know, malls, shopping centers, swimming pools, movie theaters, apartments, everything. We, um, we kind of have exclusive access to bring tours and guests in there. Another one called Alice Arm, a silver mining town, another resource. Another one half hour away by boat is Antioch, probably one of the most interesting ones, was a copper uh, mining town in the early 1900s that had everything there. You know, had uh, Canada's largest dam at one time, which is still standing there, a big concrete dam, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's so impressive. And then, uh, Port Essington is a uh, salmon cannery uh, down in the lower Skeena. Doreen, another uh, mining and agricultural town that we're actually fairly close to right now. Yeah, and then there's some other ones up in the mountains, some other mining towns. So all resource-based ghost towns that, you know, it's typical. We go in, we set up shop, extract a resource, and when the resource is depleted, we move on. And, you know, whatever remains, <laughs> remains in these towns. A few people remain sometimes. And But, yeah, a lot of these now are totally abandoned or, you know, a few people may have taken up a summer home or cottage in these places so yeah we're we're lucky enough to have uh that and it's it's really surprising the number of people i know that have this passion for ghost towns and, and history especially in the province so this one that was i guess became a ghost town in the 80s there you said it's got movie theaters or a movie theater and apartments and yeah it's it was only open for uh, a year and a half so the, the american company came in and built a whole community there. There's, I think, 200 or not, 100 houses. There's seven apartment buildings, uh, swimming pool, library, school, you know, um, there's, there's just all kinds of stuff there. There's a, a curling rink up there, a pub, a couple restaurants, post office, a Sears, the Royal Bank, yeah, just everything in this town. And it, it's basically a time capsule going back to the 80s that uh, those of you that are familiar with that, the old Harvest Gold appliances and that, and, you know, all the houses have these big ashtrays <laughs> in them still. And, you know, it's, it is really going back in time and brings back a lot of memories from growing up and seeing these things that, uh, you know, as a kid. So if somebody came on one of your tours, they'd be able to see one of these places or maybe a couple? Yeah, one, two, three. We've done multiple trips where we'll we'll go to all five. But, um, you know, over two or, two or three days, you can see three of them definitely. I just came back from one here uh, a couple of days ago. And, yeah, we take interested people into to these places. And they're all, you know, mostly privately owned. So it's, you know, or you need a permit to get into to some of them. So it's... They, uh, they are challenging to, to get to, you know, ocean stuff, a lot of driving and, you know, weather, stuff like that. And then when you get there, we actually have the option of staying in uh, three of them as well overnight. So we provide accommodations in three of the ghost towns. You actually get to overnight in these places, you know, sometimes oh, wow. we're the only people there in these towns and, you know, you're creaking and noises <laughs> and other stuff. But yeah, it, uh, it it's quite unique. So do you research other ghost towns? Throughout BC, or are you primarily interested in the ones in this area? Primarily these ones. I do have an interest, um, you know, some more of the coastal ones um, down the coast, uh, you know, Butedale, Ocean Falls, and Namu. There's there's actually uh, quite a few ghost towns, uh, even Alaska, you know, just for personal interest up in the Panhandle has a ton of canneries up there that I, I know and have read a lot about. It'd be interesting to go up and visit them. And a lot of them are fairly intact as well. Yeah, especially when you know a little bit of the history about all of them and the stories in that, uh, you know, they kind of come to life that way. So, yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, primarily Northwest BC is what my passion is now. But, you know, that being said, if I see a ghost town when I'm traveling somewhere, I'll definitely uh, try and get in and visit it. 
Now, I heard about, I think it was uh, Diefenbaker's Bunkers. Have you heard anything about this one? No, I'm not familiar with those. I, I heard there's some military, an abandoned military base, and I figured if anyone knew about this sort of stuff, it would be the guy who researches ghost towns. Yeah, I mean, we have some military stuff here. The mouth of the Skeena River, Prince Rupert, you know, during uh, the war, we had... You know, there's some pillboxes and other stuff at the, the mouth of uh, the Prince Rupert Harbor that were all armed. We had nets going across the harbor, you know, thinking the Japanese subs were going to come in and torpedo or I don't know what we had there for fishing boats or whatever. We had a train that went up and down the Skeena twice a day that was an armament train, you know, with, uh, you know, guns sticking out of it and, you know, full of armor. And this thing would make, I think, a trip in the middle of the night and one in the day looking for, you know, Japanese subs that entered the mouth of the Skeena or boats coming up. So, yeah, we ran this uh, military train, which is, you know, a lot of photos and stories about that one going up and down the Skeena. So, you know, we do have a little bit of war history and in, in that, uh, you know, even in this area as well. That is so cool. And then, of course, fishing. You yeah. Take, you take people out fishing? Yeah, another thing I do, do some fish guiding on the side, which I love to do, take people out and, yeah, hopefully uh, get them into some fish and yeah, experience this, you know, the rivers that we have in this area, which are just endless. You know, we have the Skeena, the second largest river in the province here, and so many tributaries off that and so many access points in northwest BC here for accessing the ocean and then, you know, small tributaries and rivers off that that are all different in their own way with different species and timing and yeah, with all the different uh, fish that we have. So it really is just a, a fisherman's paradise up here for for that. And, you know, we can start fishing, well, pretty much year-round for steelhead here. But, you know, some of the salmon show up in uh, late April and we'll go into November. And, you know, in between that period, it's just one species after another and different timing between all the, you know, the systems that we have. So if we go back to jet boating a little bit, you can access some pretty remote areas with a jet boat. Oh yeah, they are, I mean the places you can get with a, a jet boat here, it's it's just it really is endless and I'm always looking on Google Earth for you know new places that I can get into with my boats and especially these these new inflatables with the the small jets that uh, you go to places that are otherwise you know helicopter you know accessible only and even some of those there's nowhere to land on some of these small creeks and it's really opened up some of the systems here and you know, we're fortunate enough to have uh, a number of tributaries, especially on the Skeena, that have never been logged. So um, logging is also a big thing up here. And But, you know, we do have some tributaries where, yeah, there is uh, no logging, no industry, nothing up these places. They are totally pristine. And you can take a jet boat, you know, 30 kilometers up some of them. You know, there's even, you know, a couple. I think I went up one this year that was probably in the 80, 90 kilometer range. I went up uh, 65 with this boat and then probably another 30 with a small inflatable after that. It uh, almost from the Skeena Valley over to the Douglas Channel. Uh, you know, it's hard to, if you don't have a map in front of you, but yeah, it's just, like I said, the possibilities are endless here with the number of tributaries we have and just, you know, the technology today with these jet boats and tunnels and how flat they are and plastic and, you know, everything that they're putting into them. And you wait for a little bump of water on some of these, you know, a little bit of rain or fresh it and you can go into spots that yeah, you'd otherwise never be able to get into. So we talking about the training course and is that something that's open to only UMBC students or can somebody just sign up for that one particular course? No, it, it's primarily for people in the community. So, you know, I would say people that are new to jet boating that aren't that familiar with it, 
you know, want to get uh, some experience, learn some tips and tricks in that before they get out. You know, maybe they're even looking at it, buying a new jet boat. And, you know, we have, you know, usually five or six jet boats there, different sizes, types. They get to see all the different brands and types and sport jets and V8s and outboards and all the different pumps and Hamiltons and, you know, it's American Turbine. There's just so many different options. So they'll actually get a good feel for what's out there. Um, so that's probably one audience. And then the other is the... Um, you know, kind of that that uh, working kind of, uh, you know, DFO, uh, BC, uh, the conservation officers, um, you know, fisheries technicians and biologists. Um, they're a big audience as well. So they'll come out and take that to, you know, kind of, I guess, tick off that uh, um, WorkSafe BC. Um, you know, they need some sort of training. And, you know, WorkSafe right. nowadays is, you know, if there's not a course out there, you have to do something, whether it's, you know, training your staff internally or taking the next available, you know, best course that's out there. So, um, this usually ticks off that box, you know, in combination with, you know, more training from mm. someone in the company. They're not just going to let them loose on a big uh, 50, 60, $100,000 boat, but at least it gets them started. And so that would primarily be our market for, for that course. And yeah, very popular, um, you know, like I said, just a wide, wide range of people that have, have taken that and lots of good things to say about it that uh, they get out there and kind of get this mindset. And there's still things today you know, for myself, who I'm out there almost every day, it seems jet boating, I still think of the things that we learn in that course that, that, um, you know, I still hold true where to run a boat and, you know, going out and checking, you know, rivers and levels and, you know, walking them prior to going out there and uh, running it with your boat, like just, you know, especially if I have guests on board that, you know, I keep, oh yeah, and that in the course, we do this, we do this, we do this, and, it, you know, it all comes back to you, so... So when I'm out in the ocean, we've got navionics and bathymetry that'll show us a pretty good idea of what the, the ocean floor looks like. Yeah. But with the rivers changing so often, do they have any sort of thing like that? Or is all just local knowledge and running the rivers slowly at first and, and getting used to it? Yeah, I think it's more that there really isn't anything out there. You know, one of the best things is going with someone first who's run the river and, uh, you know, making a lot of mental notes there. There is, you know, Google Earth and Bing Maps. There's a few on some of these tidal rivers that do show the gravel bars and that if they're tidal. That'll give you a good idea, you know, especially if you're going to run some of these coastal rivers that are very tidal. You try and go in at low tide. Some of them fan right out and there's one slot in there to get up in, a, you know, in a boat at low tide, which, you know, I, I get anxious even running a jet boat at low tide up some of these tributaries, um, you know, that flow into the ocean. So... But yeah, there's really not much out there just, you know, talking to people. We have some local rivers here that, you know, you talk to enough people, you know, there's a cascade here, a little fall here, a slot here. There's some rocks here. Watch out for that. Talk to them and then, uh, you know, try and maybe piggyback with someone else. And that's what I try and do is ask a lot of questions or I, uh, I go up and very cautious. I get out and I walk a section. Okay, I can get through there. I don't just run it and hope for the best. Right. Uh, you know, I value my, uh, my boat and everything and, you know, and the people on the, the boat as well. So... You know, for us, like I said, it's, we don't just run things without knowing. We'd rather talk to people or we're common sense. The river's, you know, very high and almost in flood stage. And, you know, there's not a lot of debris. We know we can get through, you know, a lot of this stuff. But, you know, here we're on the Skeena River. It's actually a little dirty um, right now. So you can't, you know, you can't see bottom. You're, you're kind of going visually, you know, what a little pillow looks like behind a rock or a boulder and what a shallow riffle looks like. But, you know, every once in a while, stuff does catch up on you. And I always tell people, you know, we do our best, but those things do happen eventually you know you will hit a rock eventually in your life or nudge something or it uh you're out in the river enough it's just you know it's inevitable or you get those close calls where you're oh i just missed that one or oh what about <laughs> what about that one you know that was a close call and you know eventually you hit that stump that you know is under the water that you know doesn't have any 
you know, it doesn't send any message to you that there's something there. It's a dead calm and it's six, six, six inches below the water Ooh. or four inches. And, you know, there's really nothing you can do sometimes, uh, you know, unless you want to idle up a river, but that's not feasible most times. So, yeah, I mean, stuff does happen, but uh, you just kind of try and minimize those as much as you can. When you're not jet boating and giving tours, what are you doing? Uh, I'm out fishing lots. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think what, uh, that seems to take up most, most of my time, to be honest, is I like to explore though. I like to, and I like to read, love to, uh, find new books on, you know, history, culture, environment of this area and any, uh, you know, material that's come out there. I love, uh, you know, picking up on that stuff and, and, and reading about it. And people are always telling me about, you know, someone else is writing a new book about this area and, and, you know, hearing those stories from the past. So, which probably wasn't, uh, wasn't really interested in that maybe 20 years ago, but these days, yeah, I just can't wait to get myself into a good book on, on, uh, some history of the local area. So I would say that, uh, yeah, to be honest, I don't have a lot of, it seems a lot of other hobbies right now <laughs> other than, uh, being on the boat. And when I do get a spare day, when I'm not out doing a tour for someone or, you know, doing some fish guiding, I'm either out fishing or, uh, you know, just out, you know, I don't know, seeing wildlife, watching bears or trying to find some wolves or something. So, you know, if I get stir crazy after a couple of days and need to be going out and I have a little bucket list of rivers on my list that I want to go up and try out and, you know, especially with the little inflatable jet boat and get up there as far as I can and see what they, you know, what the system looks like and just tick them off one by one. And so I would say that's what I do with any of my free time is just out in the river on my own. Have you ever had any issues on the river? Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, well, I got lots of stories. <laughs> you know, when I first started jet boating, you know, you get out there, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and not understanding tides is always, you know, one of the biggest. Ooh, yeah. And, yeah. Going up, uh, one story was a tidal tributary of the Skeena. I went up with some friends and we didn't realize how far the tide went up this tributary and we packed up, uh, all our gear and went up there to go camp on this, found a gravel bar up, I don't know, a couple kilometers up and Got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and it looked like in the dark that my boat was up on the gravel bar, which I thought that's strange. And then I uh, hopped back into bed and we were all in a, in a big tent with air beds. We woke up in the morning and the thing was full of three or four inches of water. The tide had come up <laughs> right into our tent and it pushed the boat right up onto the gravel bar. Oh, we had no idea that, uh, you know, now I would laugh if I heard of someone else, you know, telling that story. Why didn't they look and see where the tide line was? Where's the debris pushed up to? And... You know, there's all kinds yeah, of indicators looking at the tables and things that you can see where the highest tide has actually been. And, but, you know, I was young and, you know, younger and naive and, you know, really not aware of, uh, you know, I haven't had any, you know, incidences where we've been hurt or, you know, stranded, but, you know, like lots of stories where I've, you know, spent five or six hours out there because of the tides or, you know, my first boat, uh, you probably didn't want to see what the bottom looked of that. It was uh, pretty beat <laughs> up with, uh, hitting lots of rocks and boulders and, and that, and yeah, I was just telling you the story how pretty much the first uh, rock I've hit in this in 18 months, like even tweaked, was uh, out on the ocean, uh, a little uh, sunken reef there that uh, kind of caught me off guard while we were watching a bear on shore. So that was, uh, yeah, now I'm, you know. Like Good a lot, reminder. Yeah, a lot smarter, but I, yeah, I realize that I still got to be on uh, on my toes and, and you know, I still get, uh even jet boating, I still get anxious and nervous going up systems all the time. I go up from for the first time or low tide or uh, I think that's good to be cautious. And, you know, I'm always, I see people I know that, are, you know, we call them weekend warriors that get out maybe with their jet boat a few times a year and you see them go up these systems and I'm always amazed that they go up there in them without very little training or, you know, knowledge of the rivers. And, and uh, 
you know, but then you do hear the stories oh, so and so sunk his boat, put a hole in it. And mm. you hear those stories, you know, all the time that someone had to go rescue someone. And so I'm just thankful that's not me. And that, uh, yeah, and all my stuff is, you know, professional development, I call. If I'm out by myself, I'm learning rivers, learning about the river, and always staying current. And, and, uh, yeah, so that's my professional development for my business. Well, many years ago, I was into the rivers and I really loved rafting and uh, would go down in just cheap old Canadian tire rafts. And then I got a World War II inflatable from a gun show and started running that down like the Elaho and the Thompson and the Hat Latch. And then finally, got a, uh, a proper commercial whitewater raft, which I still got sitting upstairs at, uh, at the office. Yeah. And, uh, one thing that I learned c- coming into it at first, you look at some really gnarly looking water only to find later on that it's, it's actually pretty safe. You just kind of bob <laughs> over top and then you can see some water that looks, you know, otherwise to the untrained eye, pretty safe to find that it's something that could be pretty dangerous. Yeah. It, are there similarities to that in uh, in the jet boating? Like, are there things that when you're starting out, you'd think, ah, it's fine, let's run it, only with a bit more experience to say, uh-uh. Yeah, I would say there's 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 things like that. I mean, one of the, the things that I always find is when the water is shallow and I come up in this boat, which is a big boat, and I look at the gravel size, it's relatively small. Your intuition is maybe to slow down a bit, but it's not. You have to put that throttle down and speed up. And you can just feel it. As you put that throttle down, you think, what? You're getting into shallow water. You're going to go even faster, you know, with rocks and stuff coming up. But that's what you have to do. You can feel the back end rise up a few inches. Uh And you'll put it up to, you know, maybe 50 kilometers an hour, you know, even more, just to get over those shallow riffles and then pull it right back again. And uh, so I've learned that, that that's one of the things that, you know, maybe not intuitive, but... That uh, and then speed. The the guy who taught me how to jet boat was especially going down river is is speeds your enemy. And mm. I still remember that you get in this false sense of security. You're cruising down 50 kilometers an hour when you can be going down just barely on step. You know, at 35 kilometers an hour, stuff comes at you so fast, yeah. so fast down the river. And if you're not familiar with that river, I keep catching myself. Oh look, oh I'm going 50k an hour. Slower down a bit. Stuff comes at you really fast, and uh, you can't react fast enough. And you know, the, the guy who uh, bought my first jet boat, a friend of mine, he probably, if you heard this podcast, he'd probably <laughs> hate me for saying this. But yeah, we went up a river that was fairly high and relatively easy to run. And I think he put us in the rhubarb and gravel bar three or four times on the way down and beaten, putting a few more dents in the bottom of that boat. And I was basically yelling at him, slow down, sacrifice, you know inch or two of, of flotation in the water for some some control and uh, yes. yeah he would come around these corners at Mach 1 and I'm basically trying to pull the throttle back on him so he had some control and he just couldn't make the corners up on the gravel bar into the brush into the tree <laughs> every one of them was because of too much speed and I think that's something that new people you know they get that you know 50k an hour the throttles down and you know up river it's not as bad but going down river on technical rivers you know, you have to go down under control and, you know, with an inflatable, it barely, you know, drafts anything. I'll go down idling down these things, which Mm. is barely enough control because you can't make some of the corners. Right. Nuggets, it'll pinch your inflatable, pop it, sticks, logs, you know, you don't draft almost nothing less uh, in an inflatable. So come down with control and and get down there. Maybe you'll bounce into something, uh, you know, even your boat, if you're down under control, you know, maybe you'll bounce into something, but, you know, more than likely you'll have control to make those corners. So I always, uh, so yeah, speed is your enemy is kind of ingrained into me when I'm going down river on a new, uh, 
you know, a new system, you know, maybe not on the Skeena here where, you know, it's, it's fairly forgiving and that we, you know, we don't have the big tight turns and, you know, logs and big nuggets everywhere. Mm. But, you know, any of our smaller systems, there's, you know, there's so, like I said, so many things I remember, you know, from the guy who taught me and, you know, the first thing he ever taught me was look at your bowline. And he took my bowline, which was really long. I thought, well, yeah, I want to have this so I can tie off on trees, on shore and whatever. And he took that thing and he ran it down the bottom of my boat and it went right to the very end of my boat. Ooh. And I go, well, what's the big deal with that? And he says, this will inevitably flop out the front of your boat. You're going to hit a wave or something and it's going to go right down the middle, right into your impeller. You're going to suck it up and you're going to be stranded. You're not having a good day. Yeah. So we cut that off and shortened it. So, you know, it was a few feet shorter than the intake of my boat and, you know, just stuff like that for new people that maybe not, you know, but that was the totally. first thing he did was uh, take my rope, my bow rope and shorten it up and whoever owned the boat before me. You know, he obviously had this big, long bow rope because it was still on there. And I just thought nothing off it that, oh, yeah, it's nice having a big, long rope I can tie <laughs> off and whatever. But yeah, lots of, you know, most people would know stuff like that. But, you know, maybe not if they're, you know, if they're brand new. Yeah, totally. Well, is there anything else we should be talking about? Yeah, I don't know. This is, yeah, it was just like I said, it's nice to meet you and be out here with you on the river and learn a lot about you. And I know you were talking about maybe, you know, being out here, a jet boat might be in your future and you'd probably be a good candidate for one. You, you're into, you know, safety, which is always a good thing. And sounds like you've rafted a lot of rivers, you know, rivers. And that's probably one of the main things about jet boating is reading the river. You know, you know where the current is, where the pillows, the rapids and mm. that kind of stuff, where the deeper water is, you know, the V's and everything else. So that's sometimes half the battle with jet boating is being able to read the water and the river. And, you know, if you can figure that out, then, uh, yeah, you got her made and yeah. Well, Rob, thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thanks for having me. 